BFM 89.9, the business station. This is Matt Splained, and I'm quickly coming to the conclusion uh, that introducing these shows is essentially relevant. Uh, instead, I'm going to default to Matt. Have you learned anything this week? Um, hey, Richard. Yeah, I have. Uh, I did a really deep dive into AI this week, and because um, I was on with you and Roshan on uh, Enterprise Biz Bites yesterday, and you were saying uh-huh. that uh, you've been watching a lot of documentaries recently. So this is actually about a documentary that um, I watched about the development of uh, AGI, Artificial General Intelligence, uh-huh. and it's a ability to spread throughout information networks. And I mean, I'll be honest, I I think the research was borrowing a little bit from the whole kind of, you know, Skynet is everywhere premise. Mm -hmm. Uh, But this time it wasn't so much on the outright genocide or the replacing humanity with bots. It was more, you know, the idea was how can AI sow chaos and destabilize? But it was, you know, uh, (laughs) yeah, a really solid piece of work. I've respected the host. Uh, he's also the research lead. I've respected him for a long time, his work. Uh, his name is uh, Professor Thomas C. Mapotha of uh, Paramount University in California. He's uh, in his early 60s, but he's very kind of spry and energetic. So, you know, there's a lot of charisma on screen because often, you know, this kind of documentary can be a bit um, a bit dry, you know, the kind mm. of endless shots of blinking lights and server farms. But um, Professor Tom, as he's known, really sort of brings these subjects to life. Oh, I like that. Prof Tom. Um, So does the film come to any conclusion then? Well, it it looks at sort of various possible scenarios for AI to become sentient and outlines some of the possible means that we have to defeat it. Uh, Unfortunately, it was just a part one, so we're going to have to wait a little while before we get a conclusion. But mostly what I seem to have gathered is that you have to do a lot of running, and that's the part that I don't (laughs) quite get. Um, But it seems that running is central to our fight against overreaching AI. And for some reason, you have to run around in Venice, which, given that it's full of water and canals... uh, you know, maybe it's a metaphor for the dangers of treading water, that it's urgent that we find the right path and act or, or, or move along that path very quickly. But that was my takeaway from the film. Are you, are you sure you're not watching Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning and getting the two confused? Oh, you've heard of it too. I mean, Professor Tom has done uh, quite a few of these documentaries. There was one he did that was about uh, being stuck in a time loop and defeating Earth-plundering aliens and, of course, saving humanity. Uh-huh. Uh, I think he did one about clones and defeating Earth-plundering aliens while saving humanity. Um, and he's done a couple where he flies airplanes. No aliens, uh, still saves humanity, but I think that's kind of just a, a hobby. Uh, and uh, he did one about vanilla that nobody understood. Um, but he's very good. He's always very well-researched. That's just three minutes of our lives that we're never going to see again. Unless you reboot it like the Edge of Tomorrow documentary, in which case <laughs> you'll relive it as many times as you like. Um, no, I'm I'm being lazy, and there's a, a reason for that, and we'll get to that sort of after the break. But um, feel free to give me some feedback on my overview of Professor Tom's career, uh, preferably on threads to at Culture Map threads, because there's still that unofficial be nice policy in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, if you want to send me something negative, 
you can send it to me on Twitter because I don't look at that. Uh, so you get to get it <laughs> off your chest and I'll never even be aware it exists. So, you know, we're all Why winners. are you asking for feedback? Because that's what everyone does. Everything and everyone is constantly rated. And that's kind of the purpose of today's show. I'm wondering if we're reaching that point of peak feedback. Feedback, You know, I mean, think about it. How many times a day does an app ask you to give a rating or feedback on something that you've done? So many times. But now if I answer truthfully, I tell you how many times I order out. But it, precisely. And how often are your re reviews honest? I mean, really honest. I mean, for example, what was the last food rating or review you gave on an app? Um, and I'm not asking you to, to, to name the place. Mm. Um, what was it? Um, I, I rated a, uh, a rice chicken dish from yesterday and I gave it four stars. There you go. And that's the next question. So have you given any similar ratings to other places, places that might be more expensive or they might be cheaper? Yeah, I have. I, I, I've done a couple of other places. Uh, I think I told you a couple of weeks ago, somebody, uh, I received an order and it was, the packaging was terrible. Uh, the food was um, cold by the time it got here. Of course, they got two stars. <laughs> and the question <laughs> is, though, you know, what does any of it actually mean? Right. You know, if if I rate a Nasi Kanda place um, and give it four stars, and then I eat at a Michelin place and give that four stars, well, that's all fine as long as the app organizes restaurants according to where in, you know, the literal food chain they actually exist. Right. But if it mixes up that Michelin place and that Nasi Kanda place, then those four stars are completely meaningless. Mm. Are you going to get better food at, you know, the Nasi Kanda place with five stars versus a Michelin standard place that might have an average of 4.8. Um, you know, I mean, food is subjective anyway. Some people don't like, you know, all this highfalutin atas food anyway. But, you know, you you get what I mean. If I, yeah. if I buy, for example, a 25-cent washer on Shopee, the app bugs me to rate it. But what can I say about a washer? You know, I had a problem with a leaky bunghole and it fixed it. And that, that's not a euphemism, by the way. I have a 50-gallon water butt uh, for, for those occasional water cuts and it was leaking. So I had a leaky bunghole that oh, I needed dear. to fix. And, and a 50-gallon butt at that. Um, now, at what point does the rating of things become irrelevant then? Exactly. That's the point. On the surface... Ratings are this fantastic discovery tool. You know, it's mm. the power of the cloud letting you know what's good and what isn't. Mm -hmm. In theory, it lets you find, you know, the, the diamonds in the extremely rough ground that is most of these aggregated marketplaces. You mm. know, it wasn't easy narrowing that washer down. And I mean that literally because the first one I bought was too wide. I had to buy a narrower one. Mm. Um, but yeah, you know, there are so many dishonest players lurking on the platforms. Some of them steal photos from genuine retailers. They set up yeah. a, a username that, yeah. that clones something genuine and then offer, you know, these unbelievable offers to, to snare the unwary. So there are scammers everywhere and the crowd was supposed to liberate us. Mm. But those same sites also benefit 
from having positive reviews. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a fine line for them between being a trusted marketplace, but encouraging positive comments to get you to buy more. Yeah. And you see that in a lot of the prompts, you know, on a lot of apps, they'll default you to the maximum stars, whether it's three or five. Yeah. And yeah. because most of us are lazy, we just go for that option. You know, there, there's a lot about laziness today, but we just go through and we see the stars and rather than do anything or think about it, we just hit submit at whatever the default is. Mm. So another question for you, when you're looking at something, mm. uh, when you look at the the ratings, what do you go for first? Do you look at the kind of positive reviews or the negative reviews? Well, First of all, I look to see if there are, in fact, any negative reviews, because obviously if there are no negative reviews, that's an instant red flag for me anyway. And most of the time I will read through the negative reviews just to see if, you know, how bad those actual negative reviews are. You know, if it's like I ordered from this restaurant, it was covered in flies, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) You know, it doesn't matter if you've got 5,000 positive reviews. If there's one review that says something like that, that's enough for me. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's kind of the opposite. Restaurants review me and say he walked into our restaurant and he was covered in flies. Um, (laughs) But no, I'm like you. I I look at the negative ones first. It's a red flag, as you said, if there are no negative ones. And the five-star reviews, like I said, it's mostly irrelevant, right? Because people just hit the default. Correct. They just go, fine. Um, And also, when you get into the weeds of the one-star reviews, it gets nuts. Yeah. You know, there are people who leave one-star reviews because the delivery driver left the package outside and it got wet or the package got damaged in in transport. Nothing wrong with the actual item. But, you know, how often have you seen comments like, item works perfectly, but item packaging scratched one star? Right. You know, yeah. Not, yeah. Not, not so much here, but, you know, you, you hear of independent retailers and service providers living in fear of negative reviews on sites like Trustpilot or Yelp or or TripAdvisor. You know, you might rent someone a room or an apartment uh, for the weekend. They have a great time, but they trash you because the toilet paper was scratchier than they're used to or because they wanted eight tea bags and you only provided six. (laughs) You know, so we've built up this system of trust that's kind of irrelevant at best and just enthralled to trolls at its worst and often both of those things at the same time and nowadays of course we we carry that philosophy over into people yeah so you know um and i'm sure you've experienced this as well but one of the pet shop chains that i used to go to requires you to rate your interaction with staff i hate that yeah before it will allow you to process the payment now okay, I get it. That's a great idea if the staff is doing anything to to help you. Mm. But why rate an interaction when all that interaction was me picking up a bag of cat litter that's stacked by the door, taking it to the till where it's scanned and taking out my card to pay? You know, sure, the cashier was friendly and polite, but is that an interaction that requires a rating? Mm. And Mm. why should the cashier feel the pressure (laughs) of that interaction. There was pretty much nothing he or she could have done to improve it. And probably 
very little they could have done to ruin it short of leaning over the counter and maybe slapping me in the face. You know, <laughs> similarly, uh, a story that we featured last week uh, on, on the show was about that trend for uh, Gen Z rating dates. Mm, mm. And, you know, we know the power of the crowd extends to dating apps. But this was different. This is asking people to rate you as a date or sending out a questionnaire to find out what your expectations for the date are. Mm. And the, the gig economy has normalized this ranking of people to the point where we extend it to relationships as well without giving it a second thought. Um, and I know none of this is is novel. You know, there's enough episodes of Black Mirror that that sort of cover and veer into this territory as well. Do you, do you think then that the problem is we're, we're creating this society where um, th that expectation of, of being perfect has become the norm? Yeah, and part of what we'll get to after the break are, you know, the trends and, and shifts uh, certainly in working practices that are pushing back against this. And again, you know, I've said this so many times on the, the show, if you have a five-star rating system, three is going to be average, right? You mm. know, when I was a, a music-obsessed kid, most album reviews were two or three stars. Three was good, two was a bit disappointing, one was awful, and four was excellent. And a lot of magazines and papers prided themselves on never giving out more than a couple of five-star reviews a year, if yeah. they even gave those. And that wasn't just for music. That was music, books, restaurants, TV and movies, fashion. You know, yeah. the, the five-star review was coveted. Kind of like school reports. Matt was an adequate student. Sees all round. I mean, sure, that was the norm, obviously not my norm, although you should have see, seen what I got for subjects like art and technical drawing. Uh, I'd done better using my feet. But, um, you know, obviously I don't have kids, but from what I've seen, school reports now tend to accentuate the positives. I, I get that. You know, no one wants to read Richard has all the social skills and talent of a carnival barker when he's only 10 years old, you know, he's right. got the rest of his life to discover that. So if everything is five stars, then five stars is the average. But at five stars, you've got nowhere to go because you mm. can't be better than perfect. Uh, but perfection shouldn't be average. Mm. You know, mm. it was much better. It was more meaningful when those two to three stars were the average. Um, because five stars, perfection it's impossible, and that makes it meaningless. You know, if mm. I take a Grab or Uber, I know that I have to give the driver a five-star rating, or they can potentially be kicked off the platform, essentially sacked by a machine. Yeah, which is essentially the ultimate computer says no. Precisely. So even if the, the ride wasn't perfect, I'm guilted into saying that it was, which is the opposite of what these systems were designed for. Right. You know, if someone is terminated because their average rating is 4.3, say, because that's that's the thing with these platforms. It's not like, you know, you get two stars consistently or three stars. It's when your average falls below four point something mm, that mm. often you're kicked off these kind of, I mean, I'm not talking about any specific companies, but that seems to be an average for a lot of them globally, four point something. Um, and 4.3 is 86%. How many of us who work white-collar jobs 
um, you know, if we get a performance review once or twice a year, how many of us get 86%? Yeah, zero. As I said, no, exactly, <laughs> which makes those ratings both impossible and meaningless. We've basically inverted the system. And you have to wonder, what does that say about us as a society? But do you, do you still rate every time you take a ride or you order food, or do you find that you bother less and less often now? You know, uh, my behavior with that actually changed uh, during the pandemic. I think during the pandemic, I became much more aware of what you've just said about we know that if you order from a specific company and, and they fall below a certain threshold, that they will lose their jobs. Um, and so I made it a point to rate these people um, highly, even if maybe I wasn't necessarily satisfied with the service that I got, because I knew at that point people needed work. You know, and I relied on these people to deliver tasty hot beverages to my doorstep and whatever. Um, but I've also started taking it upon myself to to rate my uh, taxi rides much more often nowadays. And I'm genuinely honest with those. You know, right. if, if my driver is 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 great, he'll he'll get a four. Uh, I don't a four? very rarely give them a five. But you very, can't give very them rarely. a four. If you give them a four, they're going to lose their job. I know, but I have to be honest with myself as well. But, the food, but, so, the, right. the food delivery is fine. I don't okay. mind giving them a five, but the taxi drivers. Mm, but that's yeah. that's that's the thing you see. So, I find myself in similar position. So I tend not to rate at all. Right. So then you then you don't feel guilty at all. Then. Yeah, exactly. And also right. because one. I'm paying for the service, so why should I have to? Um, and two, as I said, because genuinely it's meaningless. Yeah. You know, I'd rather do something for the person that has a real impact. Um, you know, I'd rather give the driver or rider a tip. You mm. know, these are people who are not earning Elon Musk money. Mm. And I know that one person adding a, a tip to a delivery doesn't make a lot of difference. But if everyone does it, it does. Yeah. But I don't think that that's the norm, at least not here in Malaysia. I mean, recently I had a Lala Move guy drop something off for me. And when I handed him some extra cash for a tip, he looked absolutely incredulous. Like, why was I giving him this extra money? And then when I checked his profile, he was a perfect five. Wow. So what does that tell you? Mm. Okay. Um, when we come back then, Matt's kicking back and getting lazy. Uh, lazy. <laughs> anyway, we'll be right back. This, of course, is Matt Splained here on BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, the business station. Welcome back to Matt Splained. And before the break, we were talking about the impact on humans of being constantly rated. Are we seeing this have any impact on the kind of work people are willing to do, do you think? Yeah, so I was watching a show called You're the Worst again recently. In fact, I was watching it again because I recommended it to you and I thought, yes. you know what, I'm going to, to watch this again. <laughs> um, it's a few years old now, but there's actually quite a few little nods in it to the kind of trends we're seeing. I think it, it 
was originally broadcast in like 2013, 2014. Mm. Um, and there's one episode where the leads force their roommate to give them a ride. And they then rate him one star <laughs> after the after the ride. But in a subsequent episode, we find out that that roommate, Edgar, was in the middle of a mental health crisis when they oh. gave him that one star rating. So it's all played for comedy in that first episode. And then you see the, the backstory in a further, uh, further episode. And that rating hits him just as he's about to hit rock bottom. And th that's kind of the thing. When we hit, one star because you know someone didn't wait at the door while we got out of the shower got dressed and came down to get the package what's the impact on that person mm. you know we we mentioned kind of the workplace consequences those ratings could cause you to be fired and you know just that emotional stress and pressure uh from working in that kind of environment for for jobs that frankly shouldn't have that kind of pressure subjected on them. Mm. What about the impact of things like automated productivity measurement tools? We yeah, know who so, we're talking about here. and Yeah, yeah, of course. So again, you know, workers usually in these lower paid positions are increasingly being assessed by machines as though they themselves, the workers, were machines. So say in distribution hubs, did you pick the order fast enough? And all of these alerts are being sent in real time to managers that a member of staff is underperforming. So they can be pulled off the line and, you know, shouted at or re-motivated, you know, minutes later. Mm. You know, we've heard these stories of staff and drivers wearing adult diapers because they mm. can't take bathroom breaks and still meet the requirements of those automated systems monitoring them. Mm. Uh, we've talked about software that measures the number of keystrokes on a keyboard uh, to, to make sure that you're working at a consistent rate, software that tracks your eye movements, and couple that with the the trends we're, we're seeing in AI. Uh, and I mentioned that episode of uh, Enterprise BizBytes earlier. Check that out because uh, uh, the episode about the recent UN Security Council meeting on on AI, where we go over some of these issues as well. And that one's for real. I'm not talking about Professor Tom Cruise or any <laughs> of that kind of nonsense. Uh, so, you know, we have AI coming in and essentially taking on some of the tasks that juniors or interns would normally be hired to do. So we're seeing all these massive and explosively fast changes to our working culture. Like remote work. Yeah. So, you know, and this is one of the things that people, especially people like me, tend to overlook. You know, we look at the positives of remote working. Uh, no commute, less office politics. You know, you don't have the drama of putting up with people and their behavior. You get more control over your time. But we don't think about the impact on the people who are just coming out of school or college that they're mm. just entering the workforce. Mm. You know, companies like to talk about values and culture. Well, how does a new hire experience those values and learn about that culture if, you know, you leave university and you're hired to sit in your bedroom on a video link all day? Yeah. What's the impact then of never meeting your colleagues or your bosses in person? You know, how do you fit into the team if the team is only ever virtual, because mm. it's not instinctive behavior. We learn this behavior. We learn how to 
contribute and fit into teams and companies. And that's much harder for people coming in without that workplace experience if all those colleagues are remote. So given all, all these changes, you know, companies that hire you but don't want to see you and have machines that monitor your performance, you know, a, and looking at AI and other systems that could make your job irrelevant in a month, a year, or a decade, what would you decide to do? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I've thought about this quite a lot, and we've – I've spoken to people who have recently graduated and their entire working career has been online uh, so far, you know, and they've been doing it for two years. And I've even spoken to parents of, of kids who have had difficulty getting their kids into school after the pandemic because they've spent two years at home and they, the kids don't know how to interact with other kids. They don't know how to do it. Exactly. And then, you know, if you're if you're thinking about that that job, if you're thinking about that as a potential career, why would you bother? Yeah. You yeah. know, and certainly across developed economies, we're looking at the the reemergence of generational wealth and downward mobility. Kids are no longer guaranteed a better life than the ones that their parents had. Um, these ideas of, you know, financial freedom, property ownership. That comes to people when they inherit, not when they earn. Correct. And that inheritance culture, as it's been defined by um, the economist Thomas Piketty. So, you know, knowing that you you might look at the the constantly hustling Gen Y millennials and think, you know, what is the point? What am I hustling for? What am I hustling yeah. towards? You know, if technology is going to to force you out of a job or out of that career path every few years, what is the point of putting in that time and that effort? So does this bring us back around then to this idea of quiet quitting? Kind of. It's more, I think, of an evolution of those trends of quiet quitting and the great resignation. Right. And again, you know, I think this is a Gen Z trend that we're seeing through platforms like TikTok. You know, we're getting a window mm -hmm. on this behavior with hashtags like lazy girl jobs. And it is a continuation of this idea of being paid to do your job rather than what has become the expectation, which is doing more than your job because you're doing it to build a career. Build a career, yeah. Yeah. But technology is turning those ideas upside down. Uh, again, you know, touched on some of this on Enterprise BizBytes, but this technology is evolving so fast that we don't know which careers will, you know, still be around in 10 years from now. Uh, speaking of Enterprise BizBytes, the, the show that you did with us um, on Thursday of last week, um, one of the things that you did mention was that change in our relationship with work. Can you just expand on that a little bit? Yeah. So we've seen these changes over a relatively short period. And I'm talking a few hundred years because that's short in evolutionary and behavioral terms. So hmm. the Industrial Revolution changed what we did. Uh, you know, what, what we did, it turned them into jobs and it concentrated them in cities. Before yeah. that, you know, people were craftspeople. They were farmers, fisher folk, that type of thing. Suddenly people were hired hands working in towns and cities to tend or 
feed machines. So that was the kind of growth across the the, the kind of 18th and beginning of the 19th century. Uh, in that sort of mid to late part of the 19th century, we saw this uh, growing entrepreneurialism. Uh, we saw this move away from um, rent-based wealth uh, to generated wealth. And we saw mm -hmm. this emerging middle class. And as well as that emerging middle class, we saw the professionalization of you know, these white collar positions, uh, right. accountant, yeah. lawyer. Yeah. Uh, so for the 20th century, that became the norm. And we, you know, we kind of thought that everything was always like that, whereas that was actually a relatively new idea. You know, this idea of multinational companies just yeah. in time supply chains. And that status quo became settled for a few generations, long enough for people to think that that is the only way to do things, the proper right. way to do things. But technology over the last decade especially has exploded that myth. Um, you know, it's, it's changing the way we work and it's changing the relationships we have with the jobs we do. But how does that link back to the idea of lazy girl jobs? Um, and how, how do you define a lazy girl job? You know, give me an example, perhaps. Well, you know, one of the pieces I read indicated that there's no real male equivalent of the lazy girl jobs hashtag, possibly oh. because, you know, men are still favoured by the working conditions and cultures of many companies. But that's, you know, a completely different topic. So uh, a lazy girl job is a job that pays you enough to, to live well, but doesn't require you to be passionate about you, what you do or to commit emotionally. Ideally, it's going to be something, you know, office-based, white collar, but something that's largely kind of undemanding. You clock in, you clock out, work isn't your life, your life is your life. Um, ironically, that's pretty much what we thought of as a job, a nine-to-five mm up until about the 1990s when it all started to change. Sounds like uh, some kind of data entry job to me. Well, there's there's kind of nothing wrong with that in a, no, in a sense. Exactly. Just, yeah, precisely. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons that I've said on the show before that I think generations X and Y are more closely linked to each other than either of those generations is to the millennials because Gen X kind of bought into that career thing, but now we're getting a bit old. We want lazy girl jobs too. <laughs> um, you know, we understand that our passion is never going to pay the bills. Mm. So we want to pay the bills and not let it get in the way of that passion, whether it's playing golf or winning a and a d championship. Um, neither of those are examples from my life, by the way. You won't see me sure. on a, a golf course. Um, but you have this generation that has very different expectations now i'm going to interrupt you before you go off on a, a, a golf round uh but essentially we're, we're looking at a generation of people with a a different expectation of work is that right yeah and why does six people need a hundred acres of land but anyway um <laughs> why define yourself by a career that may not exist in a few years time especially when your passion isn't something that you can easily commercialize, like mm. social activism or a, a podcast or YouTube channel for middle-aged guitar obsessives. Uh, mm. And you will not be surprised to know that there are a lot of those. Oh, and I mean a lot. A, a lot, <laughs> a lot, a lot. Um, you know, 
Downsizing is pushing one generation out of careers, while technology limits the opportunities for another generation to enter them. Mm. And that kind of funnels everyone from both ends towards this gig economy. And the gig economy is kind of the ultimate millennial construct. You get out of it what you put in. The more hours you work, the more money you make. Mm. But how many people want to expose themselves to those levels of stress for the kind of money it pays? Sure, you know, you can maybe cover your bills, but are you really living? And that's why the idea of the lazy girl job is actually aspirational at both sides. So if you're on a career path with a demanding job and bosses, a lazy girl job is a great way to downgrade. You get rid of the stress, but you get to maintain your lifestyle. Mm. Or for someone in the gig economy, it's a great upgrade. Again, you get rid of the stress um, and you actually get to sort of maintain and even increase your lifestyle. So you can yeah, see yeah. the kind of theme here. A lot of it is about getting rid of stress and gaining more stability. You know, your hours, your pay, and you know what your working conditions will be like. Yeah, yeah, but there is a difference between a, a trend and a change. And a change, you know, trends, excuse me, are generally less permanent, while a change indicates more of a long-term movement. Again, without wanting to go back over the the elements that I talked about on on Bizbytes yesterday, you know, we've seen this massive upheaval in our working models since 2020. Um, Remote working and the pandemic, of course, have been major drivers of those changes. But mm. the emergence of business AI as a force is really only six months old, and it's already having this colossal impact. So, like I said, I talked about that more on, on BizBytes yeah. yesterday. Um, so this technological and social-driven change is happening even faster than the trends can emerge. So Lazy Girl Jobs is actually a reaction to those changes. The changes are driving the trends. Uh, there's actually a fascinating article on the Unheard, that's U-N-H-E-R-D, uh, Unheard website, about the emergence of bohemian peasants. It's a generation of people um, that's kind of middle class in its outlook, but doesn't own property. They're, they're landless mm. serfs in a modern mm. sense. Um, and the idea is that people are moving away from this idea of, you know, everyone wanting to be a city-based creative. And I know bohemian peasants, it's, you know, it's going to be one of these niche cultures because we can't all go and live in forests or on beaches and we can't all forage for food. There isn't, you know, enough space or resources. But it is an indication of change. Change in the way we want to work, but most importantly, changes in the way that we want to live well thank you very much for that matt of course if you miss any part of this show go download the podcast wherever you normally get it from we recommend the bfm app available in the apple app store or google play and do subscribe to matt's substack that's available at culturepop.substack.com and he's on all the socials he's on uh twitter he's on instagram he's on threads and he's got a website culturepop.com there you go. Yeah, and the only place you can talk to me is on threads. All the other ones, he I'm awful. All right. This, of course, has been Matt Splained here on BFM 89.9, the business station. <laughs>